Hi everyone, it's nice to hear. We're back this week with another super exciting episode. I'm joined by my co-host Kat and Agata. Hello, hello. Hey. So Kat was the one who found and produced the story, so we're gonna let her lead us through it. So Kat, what are we talking about today? Yes. So today we're gonna be talking a little bit about disinformation. So first things first, when you hear the word disinformation, what's the first thing that comes to mind? So I'm imagining like a dark basement, sort of evil looking guys in hoodies tapping away on their computers, you know, to spread misinformation. Maybe the 2016 election scandal also. Yeah, or something like fake news with outrageous headlines being shared by my crazy aunt on Facebook. <laughs> yes, definitely both of those things. <laughs> but you're probably not thinking of the late 1800s. No, yeah, that's the last thing that comes to mind. I think for me, this information feels very modern. Like it's something that has evolved, you know, when the internet was around with social media. Yeah, or something. I mean, for me, at least, like I think of it as probably being around uh, 2014 in Ukraine. And, you know, the fa- most famous case that comes to mind is definitely uh, 2016 and, you know, the U.S. election scandal. Yeah, well, you guys aren't wrong. So in the Western consciousness, disinformation is a relatively new phenomenon. So the actual word disinformation only entered the English vernacular in like the late 1970s and early 1980s. But it should come as no surprise that the word actually originated in Russia. So from the word disinformatsia. Yeah, that's literally no surprise at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so obviously we know the Russians are pioneers of information warfare. So although it only reached the Western consciousness in like the late 1970s, in Eastern Europe, Russia has been wreaking informational and other kinds, honestly, of havoc since <laughs> way back into the Tsar's times. Um, so the first time the word disinformation was introduced to officially describe a type of Russian tactical operation was in 1923, when the deputy chairman of the state political directorate or the GPO called for the establishment of a special disinformation office out of which he would conduct these intelligence operations. Wait, so you said officially, but what about unofficially? Yes. So, so right. That was officially, but unofficially information warfare has been present in Russian policy since even in like the 19th century following the invention of the rotary printing press. So quite literally from the moment that information started being disseminated on a large scale, the Russians were already distorting it. Um, the Okhrana or Russian Imperial Police was founded in 1881 and pretty much as early as 83, they were already operating abroad in Paris to spread disinformation in order to protect the Tsar and undermine anyone who might oppose him. But what exactly was the threat to the Tsar like half a continent away? I mean, why why was there an office in Paris for the Russian Imperial Police? Well, in Paris, well, the primary targets of the Okhrana in general were Russians that participated in quote unquote revolutionary activities. So that included those abroad. So they wanted to infiltrate and break up any organizations or individuals that might try and overthrow the Tsar. And there was an active community of about like 5,000 Russians in Paris at the time that were engaging in, you know, these revolutionary activities and they were deemed a potential threat. So one example of how the Akhrana used misinformation and disinformation to convince these revolutionaries um, was they would forge fake meetings that didn't exist. So they would invite revolutionaries to fake meetings and arrest them when they got there 
or they would convince revolutionaries to go back to Russia or to Russian soil by giving them false information. And when they got there, they would be executed, basically. Well, we know that did not work out well for the Tsar. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Well, yeah. So we all know how that story ends. Um, obviously, despite the Okhrana's best efforts, a revolution ended up coming to Russia. But they actually, like, in all seriousness, were incredibly successful in laying the groundwork for the use of false information as a weapon of the state. And future Russian leaders definitely took note of that. So what was, I mean, what was one of the first things that the Bolsheviks did when they came to power in their early days? Didn't they establish, um, like, control over publishing houses and shut down all the presses? Yeah, exactly. So they established a monopoly over information. They used it wisely, except, of course, having control of the press to disseminate information is useless if... If basically the majority of the population is illiterate. But, but then, so you just teach them how to read so they can read your propaganda yeah. and hence the massive Soviet literacy campaign yeah. in the 20s. Right. So it's, you know, all making a lot of sense. And all of this, I mean, all of this is pretty widely known and discussed, uh, I feel as though. But I think where things get interesting is what they were doing outside of their borders, actually. So... In 1920s, one of the main goals of Soviet intelligence agencies um, externally was to deceive the West into thinking that the USSR had a much more powerful military than it actually had. That sounds so, very familiar. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Right? <laughs> We're still falling for it today. <laughs> and so um, the USSR, yeah, so at the time, the USSR was a young state. The dust of the revolution was still settling, and they couldn't let anyone think that, you know, there were any cracks in the glass and that the West had an opportunity for a coup. So in traditional Russian fashion, they pulled out the smoke and mirrors. They started passing along fabricated letters of disinformation to their unfortunate first victims, the Estonians. Um, the letters contained, uh, there, there's a reason that it was the Estonians, but we won't get into it, but it's just, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> but basically, yeah. So the letters contained that they were passing along contained this doctored information, fabricated information about the state of the Red Army. And it basically, um, as I said earlier, they had an office created in 1923 at the Gabau, and they produced all of these fake things like fake Politburo meetings, fake reports, fake statistics to create an illusion of Soviet grandeur and pass it along to the West. And the West would think, you know, oh, they have this big and powerful military. So eventually, the disinformation branch kept growing and it became so big that I think at its peak, it was split into like 50 different sub compartments, each of which was all running like a different disinformation campaign. This disinformation that they had spread about Russia's military might sort of deterred the West from intervening after the revolution? Well, yeah, I, that, that's the idea, I guess. I mean, that is what they believe. Um, and in general, it's what a lot of people believe. I think in the intelligence community, the Russian info ops in the 20s are hailed as a pretty big success story. And of course, most importantly, it did set a precedent for them in stone um, that I guess other people's ignorance is your strength. Honestly, why is everything about Russia literally a George Orwell reference? <laughs> literally. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, well, we're still only at the beginning. So oh strap in, girls. <laughs> Oh, great. Um, so it gets worse. Yes. Russian history in three words, essentially. Um, okay. So where were we? Um, okay. 
So basically, at this point, right, the Russians are becoming more and more proficient in disinformation operations. We're not dealing with the Gipa'u anymore. A few decades pass by, a lot of changes, reshuffling, etc. By the 1950s, dramatic music, we're <laughs> dealing with the KGB. So, yes, it did get worse. Yes. So eventually, this thing called Department A emerges at the KGB. It's the department in charge of disinformation operations. So amongst many, many things, one of the targets was the foreign press. It's estimated that by the early 1980s, Department A consisted of like 300 people working to put out false information, giving it to news organizations, journalists, scholars, and so on. Like the scale of this effort is truly massive. This is so Orwellian. This yes. is so Aurelian. Like, they're literally, actually, I don't know why I said literally, because I have no idea, but maybe they are sitting in a basement. <laughs> like, they might be sitting in a basement, literally thinking they're, oh, like, I'm going to plant a fake news story, and, you know, they're in there. I don't know. This is what no, I No, they probably are guys. doing it's, that, though, to be They fair. probably are. <laughs> I mean, think about them in the basement of the Lubyanka, like the KGB, oh God, and they're just like, yeah. But the thing is, they're not even, like, in the basement, you know, like the St. Petersburg farm is like a regular oh, yeah. building. I mean, obviously it's heavily protected, but it's just, you know, however many floors high, it's like a regular office space. That's so know, crazy. Like imagine air. you're that going makes it worse. To, yeah. Like exactly. you're going to work every day. You're like, hmm, I'm going to go make propaganda, sit in my beautiful <laughs> office in the middle of, you know, the, the main street of like Moscow or St. Petersburg or whatever. And just like, look at people and be like, wow, I'm feeding you bullshit. No, that's I feel like that makes it honestly worse. Um, But yeah, but basically, like it it was mind boggling and pretty much no other nation has taken on an information effort this big. So basically from the 60s to the 90s, I think that there were reports from the CIA and the Department of State that said that there were like thousands of Soviet disinformation attacks happening all at once. Like they were on the clock, like employee of the month type thing, like thousands coming on at the same time. Wait, so what exactly does an attack mean? Like what kind of disinformation were they spreading? Honestly, the, some of the stuff is pretty crazy. Like we could really go down the KGB conspiracy theory rabbit hole if we wanted to. Most of them didn't really stick because they're just actually crazy, but some of them did. So for one, if you guys have ever heard the conspiracy theory that the CIA invented HIV as a biological weapon. Yeah. Yeah. So that was AKA Operation Infection that was organized by in the 1980s by the one and only KGB. Yeah, that was a really big one. Um, some people still believe that years later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wasn't Obama asked about it when he was running for president back in 2008? So like literally 30 years later and people are still talking about it? Yes. And that's just one example of like what an attack looks like. And some of them, like I said, are completely insane and they don't really ever gain any traction. But some of them are completely insane and actually do gain traction. And Operation Infection was a pretty tough one for the CIA. Um, it was probably widely known as one of the most successful information attacks. And that one actually had tangible consequences. And for one, actually, um, like later on when it was all debunked and the CIA, you know, proved it wrong, they actually made Khrushchev apologize. So Khrushchev had to apologize like to to the United States for spreading that. I can't it, it, that's real yes. thing. For spreading no, lies. it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Guys, I'm like, I have my I had my tinfoil hat on last night, like researching <laughs> all of this. Like, but it's real. 
one of the other consequences are things like the South African president and the health minister actually at some point refused certain drugs and treatments for HIV in South Africa because they had believed the disinformation from Operation Infection. Whoa. So like this information attack could have actually cost people's lives? Yes. And I mean, this is one example where, you know, the USSR took ownership of it and issued a formal apology. But 99% of the time, that doesn't happen. Wait, so what, how do you apologize for that? Do you remember what, what that was like? What did they say? Well, I don't know. How did Putin apologize to Israel that Lavrov called them Nazis? Like, you know, like, it's just sometimes, sometimes fact is crazier than fiction. Like, they find it. They, they yeah, find their way. Perfect example. Right? It's like, you think, how can you apologize for these things? And then they just, they do. Like, I, so, yeah. So sometimes, as we're seeing, like, really, the pen is mightier than the sword. So you have a few strategically placed articles and boom, that's it. And it basically the way that the operation infection started was they planted one false article and then it wasn't like they started reposting it right away. They planted a false article and then like a year later, someone else wrote an article citing it being like, oh, this is true. Yes. And they're like, oh, this is true because of this. And it was like a self-feeding like feedback loop because they started writing articles citing the other article. Like it was anyways. That's crazy. So it took years, basically. That's really long-term planning. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like since, I mean, they've been, they've had a disinformation office since 1883. Like this is a thing that, you know, you know, a farm is the right way to call it because it's, you're planting things and you're kind of waiting for them to grow. It's, it's crazy. The, I mean, I mean, the best part of this is it's really difficult to trace the attack back to you. It's also something that you can do from the comfort of your own home and the Russians don't have to waste any military resources or blood, sweat and tears. Not that they have an issue wasting, um, you know, using their own citizens for cannon fodder. But uh, it also forces your opponent to play defense and playing defense with information is like really, really hard, basically. So why is it? A few reasons. First, the attacker naturally has an advantage because typically the disinformation is, I mean, just more interesting. Like the CIA inventing AIDS and distributing it as a biological weapon. Like that's, you know, that's an interesting story. That's and true. people love a good story and a good. Also, now that you think about it, biological weapons conspiracy theories like that is also a trend. So we should kind of keep track of that one. Um, so people love a good story, a good conspiracy theory. It plays into their already existing biases. So, oh, if you think the CIA is kind of shady, you know, here's a story confirming what you thought all along. Um, also. Once something's already kind of bouncing around people's minds, it's much harder to disprove it pe- because people don't like being told that something they know is untrue. And even when it's proven untrue, the very fact that there was, you know, a debate about it in the first place can- creates an uncertainty and kind of a lack of trust in truth from the public, basically. That's interesting. And I also feel as though the defender is in general just in a bad spot because they have this like tough job of going around and telling people no, as in, no, that's not true. No, it's not like that. And it comes off as negative in a way. Um, and as you said, people don't like being told no. Right. Like no one wants to be nagged being like, no, no, no. Like this thing is not true. This is not true. Like it's it's nagging basically. And also keep in mind, all of this is all of this craziness. Like this is happening before the internet existed. We haven't gotten to the internet yet. I did not even think about that. It's, it's actually quite incredible. You know, the amount of information they managed to disseminate and so widely too, all without the internet. 
Yes. And I have three words for you. It gets worse. It gets worse. Indeed. <laughs> um, so now we've entered the internet age and the internet revolutionized our access to information. Therefore, it also revolutionized the capability to disseminate false information. So contemporary Russian disinformation ops, which are the ones we're familiar with, were enhanced by the use of the internet. And sometimes they're called fire hoses of falsehoods for two reasons. One, there's a large number of channels through which they're spreading the disinformation. And two, they overwhelm you with the sheer amount of information. And you're bombarded with this falseness from all directions. It just comes at you quickly all the time. And it's like getting hit by a fire hose, essentially. Oh, okay. So I get it. That name actually makes a lot of sense. I also think that with all of this, like different attacks coming in from all these different places at once, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole, you know? You squash one attack, but there's just more and more that keep coming and they, you know, they're coming from all these different directions, but you can only squash one at a time. Yeah. 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 Whack-a-mole is a very good analogy, I think. And let me tell you, it's very, very frustrating. Like I've played Russian whack-a-mole myself <laughs> before, and I much prefer whack-a-mole in my arcades than I do. You know, and, but so basically, so speaking of that, do you guys remember a while ago uh, on the Shadows Project Instagram, we made a post about Malevich? Of course. Yeah, it yeah. went viral and stuff. Yes. So for the people listening that don't follow Shadows Project on Instagram, um, Malevich is which a Ukrainian- which you should. Exactly. <laughs> and this episode was sponsored by, <laughs> kidding. Um, so for the people listening, Malevich is a Ukrainian avant-garde artist that's often misrepresented as Russian. And on the Shadows Project Instagram, which is the cultural organization Agatha and I are co-founders of, we made a post describing his Ukrainian heritage. And not long after we posted, someone DM'd our account saying, hey, I looked this guy up and on his Wikipedia page, it says he's Russian and not Ukrainian, which I already knew that his page would say that because I knew that Malevich was very heavily appropriated and that his heritage was very routinely erased. Like even in the art world, not a lot of people know he's Ukrainian. But then I opened up Wikipedia and when I checked, it actually said that he was Ukrainian. What? Like it was actually different on your phone? Well, that's what I thought at first. But no, it wasn't different on my phone. It had just been edited so like literally in the few minutes between when the guy dm'd us and checked on his phone and when i went on wikipedia someone had edited the page what yeah and so i'm reading it and someone had edited it back so i'm reading it says malevich is a ukrainian artist blah blah blah. and i'm thinking okay like yeah, great someone was on that um and then a few minutes later i think i go back to like screenshot it to sh show someone and i go back and it says Again, he's Russian. So it says Malevich is a Russian artist, blah, blah, blah. This whole time, for context, by the way, like I'm sitting in a shelter in Lviv. The air raid sirens are going off. It's like four in the morning or something. I'm hearing these sirens in the background. There's missile strikes happening across the country. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there refreshing a Wikipedia page, watching it go back and forth, like Russian artists, Ukrainian artists, Russian, Soviet at some point, feeling like there were just attacks coming at us every direction like it was honestly very overwhelming and That's i had terrifying. a bit of a yes it's just fresh it's like i don't i don't know i it had a bit of a nervous breakdown at this point because it was just like it it's inescapable like literally you're sitting there sheltering from their actual weapons and then you try and take refuge somewhere like on your phone on the online world and you're getting attacked there too like it's just everywhere. it feels like nothing is safe like no place yes, is safe. exactly 
Um, and so I, yeah, like I just didn't, I felt like I didn't have anywhere to hide and you just, I'm playing this stupid game of whack-a-mole cause I'm trying to revert the edits, but then they just revert it back and you're in this tug of war that essentially you're going to lose because like I have other things to do with my life that don't include sitting around and making edits on thousands of wikipedia pages like i have better things to do yeah. apparently they don't so they just <laughs> like apparently not so they just win through you know kind of a war of attrition essentially they wear you down they fire hose you and eventually i just have to you know go back to my normal life and leave the wikipedia page as it is and also this isn't like just on malevich's page there's dozens of other ukrainian cultural figures that are seeing the same thing where ukrainian identity is edited out and they replace it to say like Russian basically and on the point of attrition Russia literally has hundreds you know if not thousands I'm not sure people whose literal job it is is to spread this misinformation and these lies Ukraine like doesn't have anything similar that could be used to fight this so of course we're bound to lose this misinformation war but you know also I, I always think like out of all of the things that the Russian state could be spending time on they're putting this effort into editing some Ukrainians' artists' Wikipedia page? Like, why Why are they doing this? It makes no sense to me. I mean, in the case of uh, the artists and cultural figures, that's kind of a whole other rabbit hole of, you know, Russian cultural appropriation. Yeah, so that could be like a whole other episode. It probably, will, it be. probably will be. Um, <laughs> so basically, long story short, I mean, it's kind of the same reason that they forged documents for the Estonians to es overestimate Russia's military might. It's part of the smoke and mirrors campaign. Like, it's this illusion of having a mighty state. And some of these artists are really famous. Like, Malevich is one of the most famous avant-garde artists in history. I mean, I guess that's what they've always done. They would destroy, you know, what's inconvenient in Ukrainian culture, yeah. in our heritage. And then they would just steal and appropriate the best parts and claim them as Russian. Exactly. And also, if they can convince you successfully that he's Russian, well, you know, that makes Russia much more powerful. They want to convince you that they have an incredibly strong military, but they also want to convince you that they have an incredibly rich country with a rich culture and so on, which is why, you know, this is such a big problem because there are many countries that think mm -hmm. that and there are many people yeah. that think that. And so it has worked in the past. So it's very, very much a kind of fake it till you make it uh, game. and. It basically serves to bring a lot of respect on the global stage and undermine, uh, you know, Russia's adversaries by making them seem as less. And in this case, when they also steal Ukrainian cultural figures, it basically leaves Ukraine with nothing to show for themselves. You know, meanwhile, it makes Russia look very good. And, you know, people think, wow, this artist is from Russia. Like, Russia is so cool. It's incredible. And that's kind of, you know, long, long yeah. story short, of course. Yeah, but we'll we'll do a whole other episode dedicated to that for sure. Um, but it all does kind of go hand in hand. And there's a lot of overlapping themes, one of them being Russia uses this information as a weapon, but also as a nation building tool. So they manage to build their nation off of smoke and mirrors. They use disinformation to claim cultural figures. They use disinformation to distort perception of their prowess. They use disinformation to position themselves as morally righteous. And I think that the reason that it's becoming such a big issue on Wikipedia in particular is because if you think about it, it's kind of the perfect platform for a Russian disinformation op, because um, what could be more ideal? It's widely trusted. People pretty much at this point trust anything that they read on Wikipedia, which, to be fair, it has built up a lot of credibility in the last decade. So, you know, it's a pretty generally credible platform. 
But also at the same time, literally anyone can sign up and start modifying the articles, which makes it really easy for disinformation to slip through the cracks. Because like I said, most normal people don't sit around obsessively refreshing these pages. So yeah, like, I guess. Yeah, I guess (laughs) I do, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, but it basically combines a lot of the elements of a good disinformation campaign. It's credible. And therefore, you know, it's widely believed. It's impossible to trace where it's coming from and anyone can just sign up and go wild. Okay, so basically, Russia has been doing this since literally the 1800s. And we somehow still haven't really found a proper solution to fight this. I really feel as though the West, you know, should have caught on by now and should have been a bit more strategically prepared. Yeah, you can say that for a lot of things, I think, but it's hard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right, but it's hard. So as we were talking about earlier, disinformation favors the attacker. And there are actually, though, some things that the West is doing to try and combat it. Some are successful, some aren't. So for the next half of the episode, we'll have a guest coming on today that'll help talk us through Western response to Russian disinformation campaigns. Our guest today is Nina Jankowicz, who is an internationally recognized expert on disinformation and democratization. Her debut book, How to Lose the Information War, was named the New Statement 2020 Book of the Year, while The New Yorker called it a persuasive new book on disinformation as geopolitical strategy. We've been talking a little bit about Russian disinformation here, its use both as a Russian weapon, but also as a state-building tool for Russia. So that's why we're super excited to have you here today and hear your insight as well. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So, Nina, you served as the director of the unfortunately short-lived disinformation governance board at the Department of Homeland Security in the U.S., (laughs) which is probably the closest thing that the United States have had to a direct response to, you know, Russian-style disinformation offices and bot farms. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the intentions behind that what the board was meant to do, and perhaps what it can teach us about the West's approach to fighting this kind of disinformation. So the Disinformation Governance Board was meant to coordinate the Department of Homeland Security's responses to disinformation that affected the homeland. Um, So there are a couple other parts of the federal government that deal with disinformation, but they often have to do with very specific missions. So there's like the Global Engagement Center at the State Department that deals specifically with foreign disinformation in foreign countries, mostly, because the State Department is not allowed because of certain laws to message to the American people. Whereas the Department of Homeland Security, with its um, portfolio relating to things like critical infrastructure, election security, natural disasters, the border... Um, There's a lot of disinformation about all of that stuff. All of the components, the offices of the Department of Homeland Security deal with disinformation like that and have been dealing with disinformation like that on, you know, a long term basis for the past five to 10 years in some circumstances. And the idea was to kind of coordinate all of their work, make sure that they were using best practices, um, hook them up with resources across the department. Unfortunately, uh, the department and its mission or the the board and its mission, as well as my appointment to the board, were totally misconstrued in kind of this partisan battle um, on Capitol Hill and in the mainstream media, which is pretty normal for the United States, unfortunately. Um, You know, since I got back from working in Ukraine uh, almost five years ago in 2017 in the summer, (sighs) 
essentially the election of, of President Trump and kind of the subsequent investigations into disinformation made disinformation a super politicized topic. And so all the times that I've testified before Congress, um, you know, I've always had good interactions with people on both sides of the aisle, but you go to a hearing and only the Democrats will show up or only certain Republicans will show up. Even though they're happy to talk to you about it behind closed doors, this this outward projection is that disinformation is this political issue. It just means, you know, that people want to censor you. Um, and especially with regard to Russian disinformation, this has also become a politicized topic because of the Russian inves- investigation related to President Trump. Um, so where the Department of Homeland Security failed, unfortunately, is in communicating the intentions behind the disinformation governance board. The the board had a very scary name where, you know, normal people hear governance board and they think that this board is going to govern the Internet. That was not the intention. Um, the, the department kind of had a lot of other priorities. It's a huge department. So it was thinking about immigration and all this other stuff and was like, OK, let's just have this uh, small announcement when really like having more transparency, more openness, more detail, more rapid response about what the board was going to do would have really served the board and I think quelled people's fears a little bit. And they're legitimate fears, right? People don't want the government involved in policing speech. And lucky for them, the department was never going to do that. Um, And so as a result, there was this big campaign by the Republicans to take down the board and unfortunately take down me as well. Um, There was a lot of harassment against me and my family during the last few weeks of my pregnancy, which is extremely stressful. We had death threats. We had people doxing us, uh, not just me, but but other members of my family as well. And it's just kind of sad to see where our political discourse is right now. And so I think if we look to Europe and look to you know Ukraine, look to countries like the Czech Republic, for instance, Finland, that have been working on stuff like this for a long time. Sweden also has has done some really good work in this area. And I've written about all this stuff before, um, you know, that communication, open, rapid, transparent communication about things related to disinformation is extremely critical when it comes to launching a successful effort. And unfortunately, the federal government is really bad at that type of communication. Um, And even when they bring on an expert like myself to say, hey, like, caution, we need to (laughs) proceed very carefully here. Unfortunately, that doesn't always make its way up to um, the powers that be. And so that's that's why the disinformation government's governance board is on on pause right now. And I left the department. Yeah. And I think that's that's something actually we were talking a little bit about earlier on the pod. One of the issues you mentioned was that it can be very hard for the defender that's defending themselves against disinformation attacks because they get this reputation of, oh, they're censoring free information and they seem like they're nagging because you have this board and it seems a lot scarier and in general kind of Orwellian that they're censoring information. And so it can really pose a burden kind of on the defender in a way, which makes it a lot more difficult. And in the same line of kind of, you know, having this reputation and criticisms of censorship, Nastya and I were also talking about this a little bit earlier, actually. Nastya was mentioning that um, the Ukrainian government has been slightly under fire recently for banning Russian TV channels, Russian music, and the Russian pro-Russian parties in parliament, and people have been criticizing them of censorship. And as well as, I think, Nasi, you said Moldova did something similar, right? Yep. I think Moldova just recently, a few days ago, actually, banned um, 
it was a really interesting choice of content. It was Russian war films and also mm. specific news channels and news programs, but not like the entirety of Russian TV. It was it was very specific. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, what do you, does that kind of, what do you think of that as a strategy in order to address disinformation, especially, I know Ukraine is a special case because we're literally at war right now, but you know, it has come under fire for censorship. So what are your thoughts on that approach? Yeah. And and this is something that I've kind of vacillated about a little bit as well. So when I was in Ukraine in 2016 and 2017, I remember the day that Poroshenko announced he was going to be banning Vkontaktia and Yandex and all of these Russian social media sites. I was actually at an international conference in Prague um, with a bunch of people from around Europe and the United States who were a little bit taken aback by by this measure because, again, it wasn't preceded by any sort of communication or consultation with the public about like, okay, like, how do you use these things? Um, how can we make sure that you're still getting access to the services you need? Because let's be real, you've been stuck in Kiev in traffic, you use Yandex maps to get around like that. And, and still the taxi drivers did do that for a long time afterward. Um, but uh, but it, it wasn't preceded by any of that or any of the thinking about why it was necessary. And the thinking made sense, right? It was sound. It was, you know, on contact, yeah, people are being recruited to the Russian-backed separatist side uh, in, in Eastern Ukraine at that time. Having that communication around it, I think, is really important. Now, what we've seen under the Zelensky administration, I think, makes a lot more um, sense and has been communicated better in terms of like, okay, they're targeting specific Russian TV channels that have connections to oligarchs who are very close to Putin. And they're telling us exactly why they're doing it. It was unexpected, however, because during the the campaign, Zelensky and his team were were pretty gung-ho about saying, you know, we're going to communicate in Russian. We're going to roll back all of these bans because uh, we want to make sure that we're reaching Russian-speaking individuals. But they're doing that in a different way. So I think as long as, you know, it's communicated properly, these these bans um, or restrictions make sense. And the other thing that I would say from a legal perspective is obviously Ukraine is at war right now, but all of these all of these um, stipulations should have some sort of sunset clause on them because we hope one day Ukraine will be at peace. Um, and, you know, there will be historical merit in watching an old Russian war film or, or something like that. Um, and we don't want a, a future government that could be more, let's say, authoritarian or more prone to censorship to really go out of their way to use these tools against potentially like political enemies or something like that. So that's why that sunset clause that would have like the legislature, the Rada, um, you know, revisiting uh, these executive orders or things like that, um, you know, in in a kind of methodical way every few years, I think is is pretty smart and is something that Ukraine and other countries that are introducing stuff like this, even the EU, which is, you know, now uh, I think Germany had banned RT and there are some other bands that are uh, being considered, you know, that stuff should all be reviewed periodically. I'm pretty sure Ukraine actually did include that in our latest ban on the public streaming of Russian music. So it's only until we gain back all of our territory and right. the war is over. Yeah. But it's really interesting that they've used the specific wording of restoring our full territorial integrity. So that includes Crimea and bus. And of course, we're all, we're all in support of that. Um, yeah. So just yeah. A, just an important point for listeners. We do have that yeah. in our laws. Yeah. And so I guess that is one of the approaches that we've seen. But I know that in your book, you also cover a few different case studies of 
some creative, some successful, some unsuccessful approaches to disinformation. And, you know, obviously we're we're looking for suggestions. We're taking suggestions as to what we can do. So we want to hear about what you learned in your research. What are some of the successful approaches? Why did they work? Why didn't they? You know, what should we be doing moving forward? Sure. So uh, actually, since February, um, and even before February, as as kind of the, the reinvasion was becoming more and more imminent, one of the points that I've been making consistently is that the Zelensky administration is actually really good at inspiring this resilience and, and um, pushing out a counter narrative against Russian disinformation. And this is something that I ended the Ukraine chapter in my book about because I was in Ukraine in 2019 as the election was happening. And it was just really clear to me that the Zelensky campaign at that point was really with it when it came to storytelling. And that makes sense, right? Given Zelensky's uh, background in, in um, performance and in, in media. Um, and that storytelling, I think, is so important. It's not just like we can fact check our way out of this crisis of truth and trust that we face. And that's not just in Ukraine. It's all around the world. The people who can tell a good story are the ones that win the day. Um, and I mean, that was true in, in my case, too. I was painted right as this like Orwellian minister of truth when really I was just, you know, a, a very pregnant lady who wanted to take a nap. Um, so uh, so I think, you know, that is something that Zelensky during the war, his administration has really um, risen to the occasion, putting out all these videos on Telegram, especially early on, where he was communicating directly to Ukrainian citizens, communicating to the international community. Um, you know, making appearances in different legislatures, uh, running really successful advertising. Well, I wouldn't even call them advertising, but like public support campaigns with, you know, music and footage from from the war that really pulled on people's heartstrings and showed the destruction and kind of the human cost of the war. Um, That, I think, is just miles away from where Ukraine was in 2013 and 2014, where it was struggling to kind of debunk every crazy Russian narrative that came out there. Um, and the same thing, you know, uh, even into even into 2016, when I was working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it was often kind of a, a game of what I called whack-a-troll, right? Like, it was like, oh, here's this random troll that's responding to the minister, responding to the spokesperson. Let's um, let's debunk this. Let's make sure that we fact check it. And that that's not really sustainable. It needs to be a more proactive, sustainable approach. Ukraine is really far ahead on that. Um, and I think there are a few other things that Ukraine is incorporating. And, you know, once it's out of the war, once it wins the war, um, I think we'll will prove super resilient and make Ukrainian society even more resilient. And that's, you know, investing in media literacy. Ukraine started to do this before the war, even while I was there, um, not only with kids uh, in school, which Ukraine has a pretty robust program in secondary schools, but also with adults. Right. Um, there was a program sponsored by IREX, which is an American NGO that was run through libraries. And Ukraine has a pretty robust library program um, or library network that reached, I think, 10,000 uh, adults uh, or librarians who then reached another 90,000 people in their communities. And we're talking about people outside of big metropolitan areas, look, telling them you know, how to recognize untrustworthy sources of news or how to look um, kind of at the about section of websites and say, okay, who's sponsoring this? What's what's kind of their um, their view of the world? And just be able to assess that for themselves. That sort of thing, I think giving people the tools to make those decisions is key. 
Um, it's something we frankly need here in the United States as well. But Ukraine, I would say, is many, many steps ahead right now. So we need to take a few pages from from Kiev's book. <laughs> yeah, I think that something that we've been doing really well is not only posing really strong counter narratives, but actually creating our own as well. Because I think yeah. that only responding with counter narratives can be almost detrimental because it's a big issue in Ukraine. We say we we can't only exist in the sphere of responding to Russia. Mm -hmm. We have to exist and create our own sphere. And so I think we've been kind of putting out really powerful stories that aren't just in response. Absolutely. I think that our civil society has just been doing an incredible job doing this, yeah. especially, you know, since the war began, because there's so many people that just have been glued to their phones. So it's no longer just the youth that's following these new narratives and responding to social mm -hmm. media posts and online campaigns. It's really all of us. So there's no generational gap anymore. And that's just been amazing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's that also speaks to the kind of genius of the way the administration has has really brought civil society in. Like I see President Zelensky sharing um, photographs from Ukrainian photographers or um, uh, Mikhailo Fyodorov sharing things that he sees people um, normal Ukrainians putting out there on, on, on Instagram and other social media. So I think that's really empowering for people as well. and makes them feel part of something. And going back to your point, Katarina, about, um, about not just having a counter narrative. One of the things that some of the, um, British communicators that I worked with when I, when I lived in Kiev used to say is counter brand, not counter narrative. It's not necessarily just about responding with a, a different version of events. It's about putting, this whole different brand for Ukraine out there. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing Ukraine about to be offered EU candidate status. That's really, it's working. It's working brilliantly. Um, and I'm so happy to see that to, to have come from, you know, Ukraine and frankly, the West that didn't understand how to contend with Russia and its firehood of fire hose of false falsehoods. Um, and this really strong, resilient country that, that people all around the world now admire. I think that's just such a Cinderella story is the wrong word, but um, it, it shows such a depth of understanding of um, of this problem that has been paid for, frankly, in, in a lot of um, lives and a lot of heartbreak. Right. And I think that that, you know, the counter brand point is really true because something that my friends and I talk about a lot is Ukraine going through like a rebranding process. And we talked about this even before the war started. I remember last summer, we were really paying attention to the way that our Ministry of Digital Transformation was putting out these kind of messages and the way the country was modernizing really rapidly. And amongst my friends, we would always make a quip that, you know, we're rebranding, we're in the process of rebranding. And I think that it, it's really cool to watch because I think that no other nation in the world right now, you can really see going through a nation building process like before your very eyes. Like it's, it's something that really hasn't happened in the past few centuries in most cases, because most nations have been politically formed in the time of turmoil, you know, in about the 1700s um, that we're that we can compare ourselves to, you know, and so we're a little bit behind, but we're getting there. And I think I think it's really cool to watch. Um, but also, you know, I assume that the Russians are taking note and surely with the the war being almost like a playground for, you know, testing out new attacks, testing out these new things. Have you seen them adjust their tactics? Have you seen anything new coming out of this on their end as well? Well, I think what we're seeing a lot less of are the cut and dry fakes that 
really categorize the beginning of the war or like the type of thing that most Americans would think of when they think of Russian fake news, quote unquote, right? Um, just like these absolutely false stories uh, that are, you know, made up memes or whatever that people are sharing through bots and trolls on social media. That's not really it anymore. And that's partly because the social media companies have been a bit more proactive in identifying fake accounts and fake media. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier to combat because um, it's harder to debunk the type of stuff that Russia is, Russia is putting out there um, ahead of time now. So what we saw at the beginning of the war were these pretty elaborate false flag uh, videos and, and and pictures and things like that that even involved, you know, staging of cadavers in blown out vehicles and um, the shelling of the kindergarten, of course, the infamous shelling of the kindergarten which the only reason that we were able to so swiftly debunk them and respond to them is because Western intelligence um, declassified some of that material ahead of time and said, look out for this. And so people were primed. They were it was pre-bunked, essentially, that this was coming down the pike. And we said, no, no, like, look at how ridiculous uh, these attempts are. We're not going to buy it. And so now I think people, when they hear a claim from Russia, understand kind of the context of where it's coming from. And that really helps. But um, without that sort of concerted effort from the U.S., the U.K., working with Ukraine to debunk or pre-bunk all of that stuff, to declassify that intelligence, I think it would have been a lot more difficult. We would have been in a similar situation to what happened in Crimea in 2014, where, you know, journalists and fact checkers were attempting to kind of see both sides of the story and see actually verify the facts on the ground and not just <laughs> not just be able to look at this and say, OK, these are clearly cadavers or, or whatever in, in this video. Um, so it does take a little bit more uh, coordination, I think, on, on behalf of international partners. And when it's not a situation like what we're dealing with in Ukraine, where you have this huge country like Russia invading uh, a country that has been you know, so important as an ally to many Western countries, uh, we see things we see things get a little bit more complicated. So let's say if it's Syria or Venezuela or the Central African Republic, where Russia is doing similar things with less international attention, with less coordination, it would have been hard to to pre-bunk all of that stuff. So um, I think Russia is in a, in a worse place disinformation wise than it was in 2013 and 2014. Um, that being said, I don't think they're they're, you know, totally impotent when it comes to their information apparatus, because we're still seeing many of the narratives that are run by state-run media in Russia getting picked up by um, the alternative, quote-unquote, media in Western countries as well. And that's where they're still achieving some um, sustainability, I would say. Yeah, I think Russia's in a worse place than 2013 and 14 in a, in a lot of ways, Yeah, um, which, is, <laughs> which is nice, but yeah. What I worry about, though, is the territories that Russia currently occupies in Ukraine, because there the Russians essentially have a monopoly over information and they know this very well and they understand that that's extremely valuable. And so you see this, you know, in Kherson and Mariupol, wherever they go in the south and in the east, one of the first things they do is they attack the TV, the radio, all communications. And like, you know, there are still dead bodies laying around the streets of Mariupol. But at the same time, there are already, you know, ISIS style propaganda trucks with screens that stream Russian news channels. And that's very scary to wrap your head around because that's also not something that our Western allies can directly help with or get involved in. Because the only help here is, you know, more weapons, more pressure, more sanctions, so we can free those territories quicker. But we right now have hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians 
who are stuck in essentially this information bubble where they don't have a way out. And all we can do is hope that they have enough critical thinking, enough faith in Ukraine and the military, and that they're not going to buy it. But And we've been seeing this kind of resistance, but it would also obviously be too hopeful to suggest that you know Russian efforts in this regard are going to be completely unsuccessful. I'm sure there are going to be some people who are going to fall for it. And that's very unfortunate because we just don't have access to those territories. So there is very, very little we can do other than, you know, free them militarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is one of the really depressing things and, and something that I think a lot of people in Washington were thinking about at the at the beginning, not only with regard to uh, Ukrainians who fell behind Russian lines, but also the the Russian citizens who were falling for the absolute dreck that the Russian government was putting out there and, and needing to reach those people so that, um, you know, they could there would be less support for this very, very costly war. And I don't think anybody has really cracked that code yet. Um, I know that uh, Elon Musk has sent some Starlink terminals to Ukraine, but I guess they're unable to reach the occupied cities and take a lot of upkeep and um it, you know, it, there's just not a, a great way to do that. But I guess uh, at least the Internet still exists. Right. And um, where people do have connection, which I know is spotty, um, they're able to access some outside information and they have, you know, the, the personal experiences that they've gone through as well. Um, we can hope that, you know, the terrible siege of Mariupol um, and what's going on now in Kherson, uh keeps inspiring the resistance that we've been seeing over the past couple of months that has, you know, inspired so many people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess as almost a final question, I'm wondering, you know, the Western countries' responses to Russian disinformation do have a very tangible impact on Ukraine, because I've seen a lot of Americans, you know, becoming anti-Ukraine because they're falling for certain disinformation or Mm -hmm. countries around the world, including um, Brazil that I saw a lot of Brazilians um, falling for Lula sentiments that Zelensky is equally at fault for the war and things like that. And so there's a lot of nations that are being impacted by this that directly impact our future as well, which is why I want to ask, you know, if we're doing we're doing a fine job on our end, what can these other nations do? Because it, it does impact us. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you were to do it again and, you know, maybe you wouldn't do a disinformation governance board again, which is my question. Like if you were to, if you were to, you know, tell people, okay, here's your chance. Here's what you should do to protect your country and other countries from disinformation. What would that look like for you? Wow. That's a tough one. Cause it's not just one, one, you know, institution or organization right. within the government. It's, it's a long-term solution that has a lot to do with generational investments and in information literacy. Um, and especially in the U.S., there is a lot of sensitivity around the First Amendment, right? Like, I actually wouldn't be in favor in the U.S. of banning RT or Sputnik or anything like that, because I think the um, what ends up happening there is it actually gives those those channels, those organizations more life in the American kind of way of thinking. It's like, oh, they're being censored, so I'm going to seek them out and I'm going to look. There's a syndrome. I'm going to look for more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Barbara Streisand syndrome is, is, yes. or, or Streisand effect, sorry, is what it's called. So, so, um, so, so I think that we have to be careful in that regard. Um, and I think a lot of it is just about this, this education, right? So saying to people, okay, like this narrative that you've seen on, and I'm just picking this out of the blue, but like Breitbart, 
that let's let's research where it's come from. And it's literally laundered directly from Russian propaganda, Russian Channel One. Now, there are a lot of Americans right now who would say Russia's not my not my enemy, right? Let's talk to them about why Russia, you know, probably is not a natural ally for the United States, why it stands for things that, you know, do not uh, do not rise to the the kind of level of American morals and values. And I think that's those really same important. People are going to go and blame Biden for rising, you know, oil prices. And, and they get- are. They are already doing that. Absolutely. So it's it's complex. Um, but then when it comes to like other countries like Brazil and uh, and others that might be more allied with Russia, I think, you know, the United States has to offer um, and I'm speaking from our our point of view, just because it's the one that I know best, offer a viable alternative to, mm-hmm. to Russia. Right. So if Russia's offering Brazil, and I'm just, you know, this is, again, a hypothetical, uh, cheap oil and gas, how can we counter that to make sure that our relationship with a country like Brazil is a little bit uh, closer than that of Russia so that we don't see large countries like Brazil, right. like India, like China? Um, those are three difficult ones <laughs> that I've named off the top of my head, but yeah. but um, that that don't see Russia as an alternative to Western power. Um, it's all very interconnected and difficult to uh, to diagnose, but you know, I think we've made progress in the last six years. And I think Ukraine itself is doing a great job in terms of projecting that international image and building that up. And now that the West has, um, for for the most part, I think, recognized Ukraine's um, aspirations in that way, it's time to turn to those other countries that might be lured to the Russian point of view um, and, and have Ukraine make its case in, before them. Right. And I think that kind of goes along with what we were saying earlier about counter narratives and playing defense is Mm. really hard and not compelling enough if you're not also putting out your own narrative and playing offense in a way where, you know, you're actually offering them something and giving them incentives to buy into your narrative instead of just playing whack a troll where, you know, oh, no, you can't. This isn't true. This isn't true. But like what is true and kind of putting that forward as well and and changing the way that they approach So awesome. I think those are all of our questions for today. Thank you so much for for speaking with us. This was really interesting. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Katarina. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys for joining us this week. We will be back again next week with our next episode. So we'll see you then. Thank you for listening. Mm